1: Today's our federal workforce show. Everyone's back from the summer, and and as everyone knows, things always kick into gear after the Labor Day holiday. Today, it's a federal workforce, federal agency show, and who better to come and be our guest on today's show than Congressman Jerry Connolly. He represents Virginia's 11th District, serving his fifth term, and he joins us today by phone. Congressman Connolly, welcome to our show.
2: Great to be with you, Deborah.
1: Thank you. Thank you very much for joining us. In studio, Congressman Connolly is going to be interviewed by myself, along with Jesse Burr, who is a senior reporter for the Federal Times. I think this might be your second journey onto our show, Jesse.
3: Yes, my second appearance. Thanks for having me.
1: And yeah, and Jesse's written about a number of uh, pieces of legislation that Congressman Connolly has um, introduced and had passed. So I think that she'll be a, a, an interesting contributor to the questioning. And finally, we have um, sort of a regular guest here with us on Fed Talk, Jenny Mattingly. Good morning, Jenny. Good morning. It's great to be here. Thank you for joining us. Jenny um, had served as the, as the executive director of the Performance Improvement Council. If you're in Washington, D.C., that's called the PIC. And she also was the director of the White House Leadership Development Program for of almost three years. Now she's doing policy work for the Senior Executive Association. So um, so we have a nice group of people here to talk with Congressman Connolly about um, some, of, um, some of the most pressing things he sees facing the federal workforce. And Congressman Connolly, I think today we should start with FedRAMP Reform Act, a piece of legislation that you interest, introduced earlier in the summer.
2: Sure. Well, you know, uh, FedRAMP was a program designed to expedite the certification process for companies wanting to do business with the federal government, providing cloud computing services. And it was supposed to be maybe a six-month process, and the cost would be somewhere around a quarter of a million dollars.
1: Sure. Unfortunately,
2: right. Unfortunately, like a lot of government programs, it got way down. And instead of being an expeditious process, it became a long, costly, and onerous process, costing some... Companies as much as four or five million dollars and taking two or three years. And so uh, we want to, we want to, A, codify FedRAMP, but we also want to expedite it. We believe that, you know, when you get a certification from the Joint Advisory Board, uh, you know, that ought to be the gold standard. That ought to be good for virtually any federal agency. Uh, And so we, we want them, you know, we want the presumption. Uh, of approval, the authorization to operate if you get that gold stamp. We also want to cut down the cost uh, and we want to be able to try to expedite the process. We also want to put FedRAMP in statute. Right now there's no statutory reference for FedRAMP. Uh, and so we've met with a lot of the stakeholders, we've met with GSA, and frankly the bill has been pretty welcome. Um, so uh, I'm very hopeful that we're going to be able to move in this legislation and try to allow, allow more expeditious entry into the federal marketplace in providing cloud computing services.
3: Um, And so, Congressman, you know, FedRAMP has made a number of changes in recent months, such as FedRAMP-Taylor, to try to move things along more quickly. So what, in your opinion, are the most important changes needed to reduce the cost and expedite this process?
2: Well, right now, well, what has been a, a practice, is that even when somebody gets the JAB certification, the Joint Advisory Report certification, individual federal agencies make you start all over again as if that hadn't happened. That defeats the whole purposes of having a JAB and defeats the whole purpose of an expedited process. So uh, our bill try to, tries to nudge that along so that that certification matters. Uh, and there's a presumption that you've been authorized if you get that. And if somebody wants to say, well, we, we have special needs, they're going to have to clarify that and justify the cost. Um, and uh, and so uh, the other thing is, as I said, providing a statutory reference for it, which I think GSA welcomes, because right now it's kind of out there in limbo. We want to put this and codify this in statute in terms of setting metrics and insisting on an expedited process because while there have been improvements, significant improvements in the Fed grant process, uh, that could change. And, and we could revert to the old practice of dragging it out or duplicating uh, certification uh, requirements. And that's something we want to avoid. And I have felt for a while that uh, this was not going to be solved purely administratively. We had to, Congress had to intervene. With a legislative framework, and that's what our bill is designed to do.
1: Yeah, and and, and Congressman, this is Deborah Roth again. Um, for our listeners who might not know <clears throat> what FedRAMP is and does, can you give them a brief overview? It, it's it's a cybersecurity um, control, right?
2: It, yes, although it's also for to it's a process. The Federal Risk and Authorization Management Program, uh, FedRAMP, is is supposed to be a program that helps uh, companies that want to provide cloud computing services and cyber services to federal agencies to get certified as a desirable vendor uh, in an expedited process. And uh, the goal is absolutely a worthwhile one, but the process has fallen short uh, for much of the time of uh, FedRAMP's existence in really reaching its goals. And so we want to set metrics, we want to expedite the process, we want to make it a lot less costly and a lot less time-consuming so that companies can provide services. The federal government desperately needs the services the private sector can provide, especially when we're talking about moving to the cloud.
1: Yeah, and um, and one of the things I was reading about uh, in getting ready for the show is um, you know, FedRAMP started up in December 2011, which is almost seven years ago, um, and this idea of sort of a public-private partnership to provide a greatly needed service. You know, in order to do any kind of business, you know, the cloud services certainly would enable if if your bill got passed and was and implemented um, would allow for greater shared services even between agencies.
2: Yes, that's right, and and you know. Some agencies are a little gun-shy. They feel that uh, uh, there's a security issue and so forth. And I would simply point out the CIA has retained the services of the private sector to move to the cloud. So if if the CIA, which is arguably the most security-conscious agency of the federal government, is comfortable partnering with the private sector, HUD and HHS and other agencies can feel similarly comfortable.
1: Yeah, you know what this reminds me of as an analogy is, um, even to this day, I think there's an executive order that supposedly prohibits it, but um, agencies and, and government departments still resist <coughs> accepting the security clearance of one agency That's right. uh, to another. And um, this sort of feels like the same thing.
2: And, and our bill is designed to try to end that practice. Uh, that, you know, if, if you've been certified in the process, that ought to be good. Uh, that ought to be one window shop uh, process, as opposed to, no, there are 24 windows you've got to go to, and each one has its own unique requirements that are time-consuming and costly. That defeats the whole purpose of having a ramp in the first place.
1: Yeah. It certainly makes the whole process more complicated.
2: Yes. Yeah, and
3: Congressman, this is Jesse Burr. I was wondering if you have any plans for an enforcement mechanism of the legislation to make sure that agencies are actually uh, using each other's authorizations?
2: Well, you know, um, I think the model we've got is FITARA, um the Federal Information Technology Acquisition Reform Act that I wrote with um, Daryl Issa. Um, we've had a series of hearings, and we created a scorecard for compliance and, uh, in fact, we're, we're going to have our seventh seri- series of hearings this fall. Um, so that, that sent the word out to federal agencies that we didn't just pass a bill and now are going to move on and ignore it. We're going to insist on its implementation, and we're going to monitor it. And we've had broad bipartisan support for that effort since the tar became law. And uh, I, would, I would suggest we will do the same with FedRAMP once my bill passes and is uh, signed into law by the president.
1: Yeah. Well, um, I I think, um, you know, there's nothing like a piece of legislation to be the actual stick to, um, you know, get compliance and a focus um, for implementation. And I'd be curious to see if it actually did cut down the cost and the complexity of the authorization process, because if it did, it seems like um, a potentially viable format for the other issue I raised, which is even to this day, um, you know, 15, 16 years or I guess it's more seventeen years after nine eleven, agencies still are very reluctant. It's 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 rare that one agency will recognize the security clearance um, granted by a different agency. They still want to go through their own process, which clearly has to be creating and an, um, part of that backlog um, that you know that's just dogged yeah, OPM.
2: I think that's right. Uh, you know, we we unfortunately have this silo mentality in the public sector. Uh, it's not unique to the federal government, but it certainly characterizes much of the operation of the federal government. And, and sometimes that's useful in yeah. protecting the, you know, the, the, uh, the jewels of the realm. But on the other hand, it, more often than not, it becomes an enormous bureaucratic uh, impediment to, frankly, uh, making progress and protecting actually the assets of the federal government. Um, I don't believe that silo mentality has served us well when it comes to cyber. Uh, And the OPM breach is, you know, exhibit A in that Mm -hmm. regard. Mm -hmm. So, So trying to establish best practices and a high standard that can apply to everybody is really the goal here. And so that we don't need 24 different policies and approaches to how we guarantee security.
1: Well, Congressman Connolly, we're certainly going to follow um, the legislation and um, and rooting for it. Uh, we do need to take our first commercial break, and uh, Congressman Connolly is going to hang on the line and rejoin us, and we are going to then pick up again with uh, Fatara implementation, which he referenced. For now, we're going to take our first commercial break. You're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Radio, fifteen hundred AM. Welcome back to Fed Talk. I'm Deborah Roth. I'm hosting today's Federal Workforce Federal Agency Show. Our guest today is Congressman Jerry Connolly. He's Virginia's 11th District Congressman, serving his fifth term. And with me in studio is Jesse Burr from the Federal Times and Jenny Mattingly. From the Senior Executive Association, Congressman Connolly, you mentioned FATARA um, in the first segment, and why don't you um, remind our listeners what is FATARA and where does it
2: stand? FATARA, the Federal Information Technology Acquisition Reform Act, is essentially um, kind of a comprehensive piece of legislation to set a framework for how the federal government purchases and manages IT. And uh, the the impetus for doing this uh, was twofold. One was the awareness of legacy systems. We have computers that go back forty years. Mm. Uh, we even use COBOL in some of our federal agencies. The only good news about that is apparently the Chinese don't know how to hack into <laughs> COBOL. But. But uh, those legacy (laughs) systems are very costly. They eat up about 40 or 50% of the entire IT budget of the federal government, which is about $96 billion a year. They're very inefficient. They're not cyber secure. Uh, They can't often be encrypted. And uh, and they need to be replaced. And we've got to provide incentives for doing that. Secondly, the second impetus for the bill was uh, data centers. When Vivek Kundra, Obama's CTO, was... Uh, coming up with his 25-point plan. At that time, he identified about 1,600, as I recall, data centers spread out throughout the federal government, and he wanted to cut that in half, get it to 800. My bill, as part of Fatara would cut that in half again to 400. Mm. Well, what we discovered was we didn't have 1,600 data centers. We had over 12,000. Mm. And 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 until we decided on the scorecard, uh no progress was made. The only progress made was identifying new data centers. They're very inefficient, that they are all part of that silo system we were talking about earlier. Yeah. Uh and we can have huge savings. So uh so our goal is to really consolidate data centers, move to the cloud where you can, uh, and try to effectuate savings. And the good news is so far we think about three billion dollars have been saved in data center consolidation and we have a lot more progress to make. The other aspect of the bill that's really important is a management uh, challenge. In most private sector firms, no matter how big, if you ask the CEO how many CIOs, chief information officers, have you got, they look at you kind of funny and go, well, one. One. But in the federal government, uh, spread out over 24 agencies, we have 250 mm. And, and so that kind of means no one's accountable, no one's really in charge. Mm-hmm. And in many cases, the premier CIO does not report to the secretary. And so we're trying to change that. We want a primary CIO who is accountable, is responsible, and, can, and empowered to make decisions. And, and that CIO needs to report to the boss. Because if you're going to make cyber and IT management a priority – uh, everybody knows in you know the workplace that if you 're not reporting to the boss it 's of secondary importance if you 're reporting to the guy who 's sort of in charge of widgets, the bowels of the of the agency uh you most certainly aren 't empowered to command uh not only respect, but uh, influence in terms of decision-making. So we want to empower CIOs. We want to get every federal agency mm-hmm. to have a premier CIO who is responsible to and reporting to the head of the department or the agency, uh, in this case, in most cases, the secretary of the of, of the uh, cabinet office.
3: And so, Congressman, uh, we're going to be coming up on the next iteration of work card in a couple months here. Is there anything you can tell us about what might be on that scorecard or what your primary focus is going to be?
2: Well, we continue to modify the scorecard to take into account lots of things like software development and patent uh, control, Uh, but the fundamentals remain the same. How are you doing on data center consolidation? Uh, How are you doing on IP management, intellectual property management? How are you doing on the reporting uh, lines in the organizational chart for the CIO? Uh, and, uh, and, and how are you doing in project management? Have you got a system in place so that there are flashing red lights when there could be a problem? A lot of agencies kind of covered that up saying we have no, we have no at risk projects. <laughs> That's absurd. <laughs> uh, of course you do. And, and again, the purpose of the scorecard is to measure progress and, and to encourage, uh, cooperation and implementation. It isn't to create a scarlet red letter on your back. Um, uh, and so, So we've tried to approach it in that spirit, and the good news is more and more federal agencies are coming around uh, to see the value of this uh, statutory framework and the genuine benefits that flow from implementation.
4: And Congressman, this is Jenny Mattingly with Senior Executives Association. I think this is such an interesting framework, and with the scorecard, too, and you mentioned the CIO challenge but I know some agencies have stayed relatively flat on their scores on the scorecard or even maybe had some minor steps backward. And I'm wondering if there are other challenges that you've identified after having seen this scorecard now play out that weren't originally on your radar.
2: Um, working very cooperatively with the GAO and with those uh, enlightened CAOs who want to get right you know, with the program, um, I think we're seeing real progress, and I think we're going to see measurable progress in the scores in some agencies. Uh, there are some unique aspects to given agencies where the CIO, frankly, whole, whole chunks of the agency are not within his or her purview. And we understand that and can make allowances for that. But um, I, I, I actually think there's a growing spirit of cooperation. Interestingly, um, I think there's the potential for having a partner in the innovation efforts of the administration. Uh, probably the only thing I could find myself intellectually in agreement with, with the Trump administration, is uh, the innovation shop run by Chris Liddell and headed by Jared Kushner. I actually met with them, and uh, basically, the goals they set out are totally consistent. And were anticipated by federal legislation, so if they really mean it, and if they proceed in 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 pressing their goals, they're quite uh, similar to ours, and uh, and I think we could we could have an actual working partnership when it comes to federal IT modernization and management.
1: Mm. It's it's just in a it's you know for any organization um, managing your IT component, which is second to you know your human capital. Is, what is probably your most important resource is an incredible challenge in today's you know ever evolving technological environment, and for the government, which is already for the executive branch, you know where its footprint is already um, got so many tentacles out there. It feels it feels um, it feels like a task that is that you know you wonder can they really wrap their arms around this?
2: Yes uh, but but you know we had no choice yeah. i mean the 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 so many of uh federal uh, data assets are at risk mm-hmm. um, and, 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 and that's even, one of the
1: points I wanted to make to you- Con- uh, uh, Congressman Connolly, is like one of the things to me that you know that seems at the very heart of of FITARA is you know there's a national security component to right. to getting control of this
2: that's right uh. Absolutely, and unfortunately, uh the worst performing agency consistently is the Pentagon yeah F-plus. Uh, they, they just insist on going their own way, they don't have their act together, uh, and uh, I, you know you ask yourself what could go wrong mm. um, because there is absolutely a national security aspect uh, to that uh, but but other federal agencies understand I think that there's a huge upside to making these investments and to implementing the law. Uh, you know, Unlikely civilian agencies, you know, the Department of Education. Well, the Department of Education has data on 44 million Americans if they applied for any federal help with respect to student loans. So 44 million Americans are in a database at the Department of Education that includes a lot of their personal financial information, mortgages, credit uh, scores, Ah, uh, bank accounts, savings mm-hmm. accounts, checking accounts, and the like, and uh, you know that that database being breached obviously could compromise an awful lot of Americans, as the OPM breach did. Right, and so we want to we want to make sure that we're anticipating those threats and trying to address them before a crisis occurs.
1: Yeah, and um, you know, people, it's that sort of unseen thing that uh, you know, technology and cybersecurity. Um, it's unseen until you have one of those breaches, and then it's on everyone's radar. So Fatar right. is clearly a very important piece of legislation, and um, certainly the federal community. We know Jesse Burr will be watching the scorecard absolutely, <laughs> um, right. and reporting on it and getting back with you on that. Um, but we know you um, just have a few more moments with us on the phone. And I think another issue that's very important to the federal workforce and probably many of your constituents is the telework. Um, Bill, that you introduced earlier in the summer, if you could just let our listeners know about that.
2: Well, uh, this is an area where, despite the innovation agenda championed by the Trump administration, we're seeing regression uh, on the part of the administration in two uh, cabinet agencies, in particular, USDA and the Department of Education, where arbitrarily they've decided that uh, telework shall mean no more than one day a week. That defeats the whole purpose of telework. And so we've introduced a bill to require every federal agency to meet a goal of at least 22% of the eligible workforce teleworking, which is the current level of federal participation in telework, so that we set a a floor. Uh, We also want them to, if they're going to develop policies like USDA and Department of Education, they have to submit to Congress a justification, and they have to account for the lost cost savings. Uh, with those kinds of measures, again designed to discourage regression and encourage more telework. Mm-hmm.
1: What do you tr- uh, what do you attribute to their the push to decrease? Well, the,
2: in in the case of the USDA, uh, credible accounts are that the secretary himself, Mister. Purdue, uh, was walking around and, and asked for somebody and was told, "Well, that that individual is teleworking today," and that got his backup, and he decided on the spot that he would change that policy. And and the irony of that is USTA is the sort of pilot that the innovation folks at the White House are using and had one of the highest and most successful telework participation rates in the federal family. Um, so it, 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 we, you know we have to avoid that. We have to set metrics. Telework is important on many, many accounts, Mm -hmm. not just because it improves morale and productivity, though it does, but it's also an essential ingredient for recruiting the next generation of federal employees. Millennials expect there's a robust telework program in place. Um, For continuity of operations, what we've learned in both uh, tragic events that prevent people from getting to work and natural events, snowstorms, hurricanes, tornadoes, whatever it may be, if you've got a robust telework program, you don't have to disrupt the operations of the agency or of your department. And so uh, for all of those reasons, telework is now an essential part of what we do uh, in the federal government, not something that's just nice to do. And we, and, and again, if we're going to make all these uh, technology investments, the purpose of that is to deploy them. And te- And again... Telework uh, is actual deployment of IT assets, uh, and uh, and so uh, we want to we we want to stop the backsliding, and we want to in fact make more progress.
1: And of course, you know, um, there's the other besides that it improves morale and it boosts, uh, boosts productivity. Um, I certainly remember that the conversation for increasing telework over the last decade also tied into the whole uh, issue of. Um, government cost savings through saving on, on, on real property. You know, if, if you um, – because at GSA, I know that when Jenny worked at GSA, um, you know, you you didn't have your own office. You shared space. Right. So, um, you know, the footprint of what real estate the government owns and needs to maintain, which is very costly, um, dramatically but decreases.
2: You're, you're exactly right. And there are private sector companies like yeah. Accenture yeah. that have gone to office-less work environments where – if you have to go to the office, you just sign up like a hotel room and, 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 and get an office assigned to you that day. Yeah, Cisco's um,
1: like that, Google's like that, Microsoft's yeah. like that.
2: It, 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 a lot of telework the, – The a lot of the impediment in the federal workplace is because we're so juridical, we're so rules-bound, mm-hmm. uh, that we can't accept culturally that if I can't see you, you're not working. And the example I use is, say, in the private sector, you're a federal contractor, and your job is to write proposals. Now, if you write proposals and you have a hit rate of 90%, 90% of your proposals get funded, get accepted, they're awarded. You know what? I don't care if you're at home eating candy and then you have PJs. Keep on doing it. It's sort of the Lincoln... Uh, philosophy and management. When people criticize Ulysses as Grant for because he maybe drank, Lincoln uh, allegedly said, "Really? What? Uh, tell me what brand of whiskey he drank, <laughs> and I'll send a barrel of it to all of my generals because he wins."
0: <laughs> yeah. So,
2: so, so it's it's really the work product, it's the mm-hmm. outcome, not the process that matters or ought to matter, and and we need to get over that and expand telework opportunities, not contract
1: them. Yeah, well, I'm sure that the uh, federal workforce in the D.C. area will be watching your bill very closely, um, and so will be here at, at FedTalk. Um. And wishing you all the best on that. But but we're going to take our mid-show break. Congressman Connolly, we know that you need to depart us at this point. want to thank you for being on our show this morning. Thanks so much.
2: Great pleasure being with you.
1: And thank you for all the work you do for federal employees.
2: Thank you. Yeah, we've got to make sure that we get a a raise for federal employees.
1: Yeah, we'll be talking about that after you depart, um, because I know our listeners want to know about that. Um, But thanks again for all you do. And we're going to take our mid-show break. You're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Radio, 1500 a.m
3: you're a federal law enforcement officer, then you know to do your job, you tap inside sources. To have a voice on policy and legislation, you join FLIOA. And when you want federal law enforcement officer news and up-to-date
0: federal court decisions, you read fedagent.com. If you aren't reading fedagent.com, subscribe today. It's free. Don't let this source pass you by.
3: I'm John Adler, President of the Federal Law Enforcement Officers Association, and I approve this message.
1: Welcome back to Fed Talk. I'm Deborah Roth, and I'm hosting today's show. If you missed the first half hour, um, I encourage you to go back, and um, you can listen on the uh, uh, Federal News Radio website. And uh, the interview we did of Congressman Jerry Connolly, who represents Virginia's 11th district, um, we were very fortunate to have him for about a half hour talking about some of the most important things facing the federal workforce today, um, and. Um, we ended that segment, um, Congressman Conlon reminded us that the last thing to um, to talk about was the pay raise, which we didn't have time to talk about with him. But we have Jesse Burr with us, who's a senior reporter for the Federal Times and has written on where we stand on the pay raise. So Jesse, for all of, all of our um, friends and colleagues in the federal workforce who are wondering um, what's going to happen this year to the 2019 pay raise, let us know where we are and where you think we're going to go.
3: Yeah, so we've gotten some uh, mixed signals about the pay raise uh, overall. The Senate General Government Appropriations Bill includes a 1.9% pay increase for federal employees, and that includes both basic pay and locality pay. The House version of that bill did not include any mention of federal pay. Um, And then the president more more recently uh, said that he intends to freeze federal pay for 2019, and that is unless Congress actively calls out a federal employee pay increase. So right now what the focus is going to be on is the conference between the House and the Senate on the general government appropriations bill to determine whether or not the 1.9% pay increase is going to be included. And it seems like, uh, at least from where I'm sitting, that there's probably a good chance that it will be. It's got solid support across the board from the Senate side of things. Um, and in the House, there's pretty much the entirety of the Democratic mm-hmm. uh, members that are part of the conference have supported it. And even a couple Republican House members are supporting it as well. So it seems like it's got pretty widespread support to be made into the final appropriations bill.
1: Yeah. So um, what's the status of the appropriations bill? That, that's the other, um, you know. It's been like five years of this, right?
3: Yeah. So the committee has yet to submit a conference report on the bill. So we won't know what exactly is going to be in that until they submit it. And it's very possible that the general government appropriations might end up uh, getting a continuing resolution into December before Congress is able to decide on uh, that bill specifically. So that was when we would find out about the pay increase if they don't have time to make it within the next few weeks.
1: Yeah. What is it? Oh, it is September 30th or? Yeah, yep. So they're, they're running up against the September 30th clock again, mm-hmm. and um, th- you, there's no sense yet whether we're going to pass an actual piece of legislation or whether we're going to be CR'd?
3: They haven't uh, had a committee conference meeting yet, so until that happens, we really can't know what's going to be in it or not. And I think there's so many other things going on exactly. that Congress is
4: dealing with. So I think, you know, obviously federal pay is very important to the folks around the country who that affects their pocketbooks and their work, but- as we look at CRs and we've seen year after year, Congress has a lot of other things too. And so I think, you know, it's always the game around. They'll probably remember they have to pass mm
1: -hmm. a budget like three days beforehand. And
4: And there's talk, I think there is will to get something passed sooner rather than later, but that's likely going to be a CR. I, you know, my money right now is on CR for some of those. They're passing other appropriations, but probably not general government. Yeah.
3: And I think also the concern about the midterm elections coming up uh, has has shifted the priorities for a number of members
1: sure so if they pass the cr we won't know about the pay raise until um the until cr they, expires it is right yeah so um that should create um you know the uh, regular amount of angst in the federal workforce and in the um you know in in federal workforce communities you know as they watch not only their own pay funding but the funding of their agencies um, very and I think
4: the biggest, sorry, I'm cutting in, I think the biggest thing, and federal employees have been up and down this, you know, yo-yo string of of pay, well, we won't we pay raise uh, exactly. CRs. But it's not just whether you get pay or not, it's the message it sends to federal employees is we're workers, we're doing a good job. This is their business. It is on the American people, but it is their business. And so what is that message it sends when they become pawns in a larger political conversation which is
3: particularly important important when we have a economy that's doing very well and employees kind of expect to get a pay raise as part of that beneficial economy
1: yeah so in all likelihood they're not going to know um until there's probably going to be a cr and when congress has to deal in the end uh, you know um, probably towards the end of the year, they'll probably get a better sense than whether they're going to get a pay raise.
3: My money would be on the CR.
4: Yeah, that's where mine is. But we can all we can put all our nickel, put yeah, our nickel bets. <laughs> yeah. on. <laughs> we'll put Before our wages getting. on the table.
1: Um, and I'm sure everyone, you know, everyone inside the space is going to be following it pretty closely. Um, one of the other things Jesse you've written about um, is the 40 uh, year anniversary of the President Management Fellows Program which it's really the 40-year anniversary of the Civil Service Reform Act, mm-hmm. um, which created the federal personnel system that most executive branch employees um, get hired under and live their entire career, get their paying benefits under, get their retirement annuity under. Um, you know, it's it's hit 40. And um, But one of the things you wrote about was the President Management's Fellow Program. Tell us about that. And then Jenny, of course... Um, You sort of had related space to that, so it'd be interesting to hear your perspective.
3: Yeah, so the program essentially uh, tries to get uh, students who've just received or are about to receive a master's degree or some higher-level academic degree uh, to join the federal government and be essentially on the fast track for federal leadership. So they go through training programs and uh, various processes while also working at uh, the agency that they get hired in to make sure that the federal government is getting some of the best of the best uh, to become its future leadership.
1: Yeah. And it's a two year it's a two year appointment. Yes. Um, it, it's it. It was previously an internship.
4: It was the PMI. So a lot of feds currently in service will have been PMI's. PMF came in
1: mm-hmm.
3: uh, not too long ago in the scheme of federal programs. Yeah. Right. And now it's a, it's a full time position with full benefits and everything.
1: Yeah. And um, it's a two year two year appointment and they get full benefits, and they're actually an employee. And I still, like I hear, um, you know, anecdotally on, on matters that I work on for clients, um, there still feels like there's confusion in the workforce that these, um, the PMFs really are employees. They, some, I think some of the um, more senior, uh, you know, older uh, folks in the workforce view them as interns, you know, what they used to be. And they don't I'm not sure they're getting the same treatment and cachet that the program really is assigned to them, which is they're really an employee.
4: Well, and I think that's a challenge with even when you see in, you know, I've run a leadership development program and I've talked to a bunch of the other leadership development programs in and around government. And it's always a challenge because you have somebody new coming in. They're maybe not coming in through the normal channels that a majority of employees come in through. And so it really takes strong leadership from the top of an agency to signal, we care about these employees, we understand why they're here, and we're going to make sure that they get meaningful work because there's a future plan from them. And as you have leadership changeover or leadership who remembers different programs, and there is a lot of confusion among programs, I think they get caught up in that. But I do think by and large, it's still this program that carries some weight to Mm -hmm. it and that it does bring in, they have very strong assessments, interview process. Uh, sort of a rigorous selection. Mm -hmm. So they are really qualified folks. And so I do think it, I I hope a lot of people are looking at it and as we talk civil service modernization are saying this and these other programs are really important as a pathway to getting folks in the door.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, interestingly enough, um, you apply for the program, according to the article, Jesse, that Mm -hmm. you wrote. Hopefully you're right. um, (laughs) Right. You apply for the the (laughs) program. Right. right? You apply for the uh, for the program through the USA job site. Mm
3: -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it in many ways is much like the regular job application process for the federal government. It's sort of designating these specific employees as uh, getting a special focus on their leadership potential.
1: Yeah, it's very. You know, I didn't appreciate that you applied for it. Um, you know, through the normal channel. Yeah. Of any other federal position, and then, um, and then through your reporting, you report that 50 to 60 percent of those. Um, who apply are actually selected,
3: that's a pretty high rate. Yeah. What ends up happening is uh, you first submit an application to the PMF program by itself. Um, And if you are chosen as a finalist for that program, then you're able to apply through USA jobs to any of the PMF designated positions at a variety of agencies. And so about 50 to 60% of the people who are chosen as finalists end up actually getting placed in an agency.
1: Still not a bad, um, you know, it's a high, it's a high rate of return when you consider um, um, the potential pathway in to the federal uh, government. I think it's probably, um, I don't know, I'm just making this up, but it seems like it's probably even higher than for people who just apply in regular vacancy announcements. I remember, you know, reporting on this during the recession, um, however many years ago that is now, that, that some Agencies were saying where they would get something like twenty to fifty resumes for every job application. They were getting like two thousand.
3: Yeah. Well, and the advantage of this program too is that the federal hiring process can often be difficult to navigate. Of you know, if you've never worked in the federal government, the general schedule requirements are very confusing to a lot of people. And so I think because um, there are PMF designated positions, it's fairly easy for the people who've gone through the program and. Been selected as finalists to figure out what exactly they are able to apply for. Yeah,
1: it's a great program.
4: And I think one final thing I'll say about it is, also when you think about bringing in 50 to 60%, these are highly motivated, engaged, employees that you're bringing in because they had to go through a rigorous selection process and you do in other places, but they had to proactively apply, say, I know what I'm getting into, exactly. I'm doing this. And so these are exactly the people you want to be bringing into your office.
1: Yeah, it's a it's an interesting um, piece of the Civil Service Reform Act that um, seems to have a, um, is very still remains very cherished and welcomed and, and of high value in the a human capital um, um, arena. Um, and thank you for reporting on it and highlighting it. We're going to take um, the last commercial break of our show. And when we come back, there's a couple of more uh, topics to the federal workforce that Jesse Burr has written on and they think are worth touching. Um, but this is our final commercial break. You're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Radio, 1500
0: AM.
1: Welcome back to Fed Talk. I'm Deborah Roth. I'm hosting today's show. It's a federal workforce, federal agency show, uh, which is a nice uh, arena to get into after summer and the Labor Day holiday. We had at the very beginning of our show for the first half hour. If you missed it, go back and listen to the uh, podcast. We had Congressman Jerry Connolly uh, from Virginia's 11th District. He joined us for the first half hour. We're now joined by Jesse Burr, who's a senior reporter for Federal Times. Jenny Mattingly, who's with the Senior Executive Association, but previously was the Executive Director of the Performance Improvement Council and Director of the White House Leadership Development Program. And who, two better people to um, talk with uh, regarding some recent reporting from Jesse, um, where just recently uh, OMB um, at um, a council event talked about the need to retrain, I love this, 300,000 federal workers. Tell us about that.
3: Yeah, so uh, William Eggers of Deloitte said that he had a meeting with OMB in which they mentioned that they're aiming to retrain 300,000 federal employees. Uh, And it sounds like the main objective for this is that with the um, reform for the federal government, the president's management agenda, the administration is trying to uh, change the skill set of the federal workforce to reflect the 21st century needs. So a lot of IT skills, uh, a lot of more... Um, modern jobs that might not have existed 10, 20 years ago. And so it seems like this retraining of 300,000 feds is aiming to try to get these federal employees reskilled for the jobs that the administration believes the federal government is going to need in the next 5, 10 years. And I would jump in and say
4: that's the sort of big picture side of it, but the buzzword a little bit that everybody's talking about, and this isn't just a federal employee or federal agency challenge, it's a across the world, 21st century challenges, AI, right? right? As we're starting to look at technology taking over jobs that people used to do, there really is a change of, are these, and I think Bill Eiger says this as well mm-hmm. in his presentation, is there are all these jobs out there that are pretty routine, rote jobs that can be-
1: Check out cashier
4: at CVS. Right, mm-hmm. right. Your I check out myself phone. now. Right, and so all of a sudden, what happens to those people in the federal workforce? And we were talking about this earlier, they're highly qualified. Many of them are actually all of them are, you know, for the most part, highly educated. They are care about the country. So why wouldn't you is the optimistic side of why wouldn't you give these folks the skills to succeed and move on. Right. Into and a bigger number things. of these
3: people, too, it, AI might not even eliminate entire jobs necessarily, but it might take away 50 percent of the job that you currently do. So the retraining would get those federal employees uh, prime to be able to take on a secondary job or secondary responsibility that they wouldn't otherwise know how to do.
1: So the number 300,000, that comes from OMB?
3: Uh, yeah, well, that comes from OMB through Eggers.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's a big number. Um, you know, when you consider the federal workforce is around 2 million in the executive branch. Um, that's a really big number.
4: It's a huge number, and it's
1: incredibly difficult
4: to do something like this. Mm-hmm. I I being, and I've, I've said this earlier to you all, but Instead of playing devil's advocate, I'm going to play the optimist advocate or something here, which is we really should be looking at what skills people need in the 21st century. I mean, this is not 50, 70, even 40 years ago when the CSRA came into being. All of a sudden, we've got different skill sets we need. And so if this is a launching point to have that conversation of what skills do we need, what jobs do we need, what sort of talent in the government, I think it's a good doorway to that. The devils in the details of how do you actually implement something on this scale?
1: Yeah, and Jenny, that's a a, a good launch into what what I wanted to ask you, given your experience running the um, White House Leadership Development Program, where you were training you know 15s to move into SCS positions, um, and you hear this, and in fact, I think Jesse, you touch a little about this, like you hear have like some small anecdotal criticism complaints about the ability of the federal government to train its workforce on some current routine um, activities that it does. When you think about now trying to retrain them to do something else, that to me says we need Jerry Connolly to pass a piece of legislation to set up a training um, department of, of professionals who, cause that's a car that's right. Jenny, that's like a, uh, a common complaint is that the training ability inside the government um, has has deficiencies.
4: And people just don't have time for training. They're mm-hmm. not given the ability. We don't have the resources. Every time we have a CR or have, you know, budget cuts, training is one of the first things to go out the door. That's the adage. I think a couple of things. I think employees really want training, reskilling. I think they want those opportunities, but I do think it requires... I was shaking my head at you a little bit, you know, during this shrug sort of thing about the the idea of whether we needed a policy framework or a legislative framework. Because I, I do think you can legislate a lot of things. Some of this is a culture change. Mm-hmm. And some of this really needs to be signaled, whether it's from the administration, sometimes from Congress, and sometimes from just the general senior, senior leaders in there. We can train. We can do broad, comprehensive talent management, and there are agencies doing it. Mm-hmm. How do you change the culture that we value trained individuals working in our, and that's how
1: performance gets done.
4: You don't have a job, you don't have workforce outcomes if you don't have the right people and the right jobs at the right time.
1: Yeah, no, it's clearly a culture. And, um, and I think that the government has not done very well for decades on valuing training its workforce. The federal workforce inside the executive branch has probably some of them it's probably one of the most complex employers of, of activities um, and the depth of, of knowledge you need to perform those activities of, of you know any employer in the world, public or private sector, when you consider how many at different aspects of our life and our society it's involved in. Um, and for the large part, I do think, much of the work inside the government is modernized. I do, um, but I think you're onto something, Jenny. When you talk about artificial intelligence, that might be that tipping point piece that well, that gets that number up to three hundred thousand. And
4: it's the tipping point for our global economy, for our national <laughs> economy, for our federal workforce too. I think this is just the technology disruptor, and we're struggling with this as we go, from, you know, farther into the twenty first century. Is how do we how much is disrupted? But I would. I also read something interesting at one point, that when you think about it, think about the Industrial Revolution. All exactly. of a sudden for history, and I'm gonna go historical on people here, but, but we've had these major disruptors that drastically changed how we did jobs. And it wasn't that maybe in the short term there was a lot of tension. But overall, of some, we changed the way we did business, the way people are educated. And so I do think this is just- It did improve going through, people's lives. Right, it mm-hmm. did. And so I think we're just going through that disruption phase right yeah. now and figuring out how we address it. Yeah,
1: I think cultural change is clearly important, but if you don't have funding and an infrastructure to have this kind of massive retraining, then I think you end up with a situation that Congress McConnell was talking about with FedRAMP where it's just so disjointed and 24 different agencies and they're not, and then you get siloed. Um, It feels like it needs a center focus and OPM really hasn't been so good at that.
3: I think honestly what the administration is going to need at this point is to find an agency or even a component of an agency that is doing retraining and reskilling really well, because uh, I'm sure that this exists, um, and using them as the example for the rest of the federal government to model in retraining its employees. I also think they need to
4: signal, sometimes you do need signal from the top, whomever you want to consider, whether that's OMB, and I think that's what they're trying to do here, whether it's OPM, to say this is a priority. Not only do we need funding and re- you know, resources and trainings, but and that's where Congress could set a framework for that piece. You need a change management strategy. Mm -hmm. You have to have leadership buy-in for these things. And you have to communicate to your employees what you're doing, why, and why this matters for them. And I think that's the piece in so many, whether it's Fatara, Shared Services, FedRAMP, we miss that personal change management strategy. So
1: you get buy-in. And so you Mm -hmm. get
4: buy-in. And if the federal employees are engaged, and this has been my big soapbox lately, is if we help them find the solution, engage in tackling these challenges and help build that solution, I think you're going to have a lot better buy-in and a lot better, faster change than just imposing a framework.
3: Yeah. It's really about getting it on the agenda of the senior mm-hmm. level management at
1: this yeah. point. Well, and it, it it's not there yet because it comes out sort of secondhand. It comes out through Deloitte, um, who's heard it from OMB, but it could be just the beginning of the administration starting to put out the feelers to the federal workforce um as uh, as you know OMB goes through this whole sort of agency government-wide reorganization this feels like it's a piece of it
3: yeah and i think the administration has been very adamant that it it's no, its plan is not to remove federal agencies in its intent to reorganize and to modernize the federal government so the plan is to take the employees that already exist and use them to the best ability that the government has mm-hmm.
1: which is where you get the retraining so we have about a minute left. Jesse, you've written about one other item I think it's, um, it's worth talking about. It's um, the USDA employee relocation um, uh, uh, agenda, which seems like it's getting sidetracked.
3: Yeah. So uh, like you mentioned earlier, I think the USDA wants to save money on uh, real estate space and relocate some agencies outside the D.C. area that not only brings them closer to some of the constituents that they work with, but also saves money on that is very expensive in D.C. Um, and I think the problem that a lot of people are having with this is that it's going to relocate about 700 federal employees and assuming they accept. Yes. And that's the issue is are these employees going to be willing to take their children out of schools to have their spouses relocate jobs, uh, basically uproot their lives to go to as a yet undisclosed location. You know, I they think that's part of the problem, right? Where It's going to be.
1: Yeah. They don't know where they're going.
3: Well and this goes back to
4: exactly what we were just talking about which is change management and communication. When you're transparent, when there's a business purpose and when you build the culture, and there are agencies across government that relocate. I'm I'm a product of a father who was a career DEA agent, right? We moved every 2 years. That is the culture, mm-hmm. right? And so if you're if you're transparent, if you build it in, if you work with your employees, it can have a positive effect. It's how it's actually carried out. That's the trick.
1: Yeah. And I think that's the missing piece is no one knows where they're going because they could be sending them to some great city um, where people might really welcome an easier um, lifestyle than here in the National Capital area. Um, That was our last topic. Thank you very much for joining us for our show. We have Jesse Burr from the Federal Times and Jenny Mattingly um, now doing policy work for the Senior Executive Association. Thank you both.
3: Thank
0: Thank you. you.